0: To child. We will survive in the statue of Swimming through the waters above and not like a rebel fish. Journalist, specialist, predator, and survivalist. Living heaven, fighting for his lips. Burn the same drive up.
1: Thought thy getting get an understanding. Again, welcome to the program this evening with your hosts, Brother Elliot and Brother Richard. The number to reach us to get involved in the conversation this evening is 215 490 9832. That's 215 490 9832. We're streaming live at several locations. You can go to com, which is the homepage, and catch the live stream. At that location, you can go to www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening. Again, that's www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening and catch the live stream there. Also, we're streaming at a bb 2 forward slash time for an awakening. They stream from Ghana. That's a b i b i t u m i forward slash time for an awakening and catch the live stream there. Or you can download the Tune In Radio app. To any of your devices, TuneIn Radio app is a free app. In the TuneIn search engine, just type in Time for an Awakening. There you'll see the icon, and you can stream the program live, even into your car if you have the Bluetooth capabilities or the auxiliary connection. Again, that's Time for an Awakening radio program. With the live stream on the TuneIn app, drop us an email at Awakening at gmail.com. Again, that's time for an Awakening at gmail.com. Time for an Awakening also has a fan page on Facebook. In that Facebook search engine, you can type in Time for an Awakening radio program. There, you always see interesting content being posted daily by myself or a Brother Richard. And do me a favor before you leave that page, just hit that like button. That's Time for an Awakening radio program with the fan page on Facebook. And Time for an Awakening Media is also there. Always full of these podcasts of the various programs on Time for an Awakening, interesting articles that you can read, download it later times, and share with your friends. Also, check out that Time for an Awakening Marketplace in our partnership with the BB2ME. Always interesting things in the marketplace all the time. Various African language classes, classes on education, economics, social systems, health, and much, much more being taught by professors on both the continent and in the diaspora. So, again, make that one of your favorites. Put that in your address bar. That's for Timeforanawakening.com will take you straight Time for an Awakening Media. It's 7.07 here on this Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening. Our guest scheduled to join us this evening in conversation, and I hadn't heard from him as of yet, because I usually hear from my guests early, a uh, little pre-show thing. But uh, our guest scheduled this evening, author, historian, and Morris Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston, Dr. Gerald Horn, is scheduled to join us. The discussion will center around Dr. Horne's book, The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas, Slavery, Jim Crow, and the Roots of American Fascism. We'll be right back to get the program started after a brief word from our sponsors.
2: Mr. Moderator, our distinguished guests, brothers and sisters, our friends and, and our enemies,
1: with your host brother Elliot Sundays 7 p.m. Fridays at 8 p.m. for podcasting or live program scheduling hit us up at time for an awakening at gmail.com welcome back the time for an awakening is seven twelve 12 in the city of Philadelphia on this Sunday edition of time for an awakening before we get started with our program this evening I want to welcome in my co-host, Philadelphia activist and tour guide at the African American Museum in Philadelphia, Seventh and Art Street. Brother Richard is with us. Brother Richard,
9: yes, sir. Brother Elliot, how are you, sir? Uh, I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. I'm uh, I I i looking forward to having a discussion with Dr. Horn around this, uh, you know, this um phenomenal text on uh, the Counter Revolution of 1836. Texas slavery and Jim Crow and the roots of U.S. fascism. I was able to, um, you know, we have been talking about it, and we were been able to go through it to some degree. And I know it's a lot. It's a lot in here, and I don't know how much we're going to cover. But I think that um, it's something that um, for this period and now is something that we should be very um, hold very. Um, be very clear of because I think the, the transition of American economic system going and creating a new state like Texas that started off as a nation is something important for us to look at So all things good. We'll everything be happening.
1: Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'm glad to have Dr. Horn back with us. You know, I'll kind of open up because we were kind of kicking around some things, uh, before the program started and, uh, you kind of threw, threw that question at me, and I, I want you to ask be the first to ask Dr. Horn, uh, what you had to ask me, so he can uh, kind of break into the conversation. But it's good to have him with us, back with us. Author, historian, and Moore's professor of history at African American Studies at the University of Houston, Dr. Gerald Horn is with us. Dr. Dr. Horn, are you there?
10: Yes, sir. How are you?
1: How you doing, sir?
10: Hey, it's all good.
9: Dr. Horn now you know uh, Brother Richard he one of them nervous persons so he's always uncertain unsure I don't know if that's the the American part of me but I am so glad to have you with us
10: oh I'm glad to be here
1: Dr. Horn you know um, before I throw the ball back to uh, Richard and hope he don't fumble uh, (laughs) look Everything that we have went through as a people in this country, major decisions, uh, governmental decisions, direction of this country decisions have been made, and especially early on, based on the quote-unquote, and I'll use the term, Negro problem. You, When you were on the program with us before uh, we discussed the uh the Counter-Revolution of 1776. And now this book, bu- the book that you wrote that came out last year, The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery, Jim Crow and the Roots of American Fascism. I-, I want you to kind of break into that, but I want Richard to kind of ask that question that we was kind of throwing around so you can kind of break it to the conversation the way you want to. But Brother Richard.
9: You know, um, and I, and we did go through um, both books and and Dr. Horn um, on Clubhouse, Clubhouse, and I think I don't know if I was able to mention to you, um, you know, there's a serious re- reading group that uh Nina and and others have been engaged, and they they've been engaged, I think, in the last couple of months in dealing with the counter Revolution of 1776. So, so while I was going through 1836, it was look, going through 1776, and and it's interesting, you know, to be able to Go through them at the same time, but this is the question, and and I hopefully is not um, showing my, my too bad my ignorance. When you say counter revolution, and you use them in both in these both time periods, can you um, help us? Me and Elliot is going back and forth about what do you mean by counter revolution? Why is it that you decided to um, name title these uh, texts and this this research as? Uh, from the perspective of a
10: counter-revolution? Well, that's a good question. And I think to answer it, let me refer to a third text that I wrote, uh, Confronting Black Jacobins, the U.S., the Haitian Revolution, (laughs) and the origins of the Dominican Republic. So a revolution, such as what we had in Haiti, it posits a step forward for humanity. In Haiti... The shackles of enslavement were broken. The unpaid workers seized power and ousted the enslaver, and in some instances liquidated the enslavers. A counter-revolution does not posit that kind of step forward for humanity. It posits a step backwards for many and a step forward for some. That is to say, as a result of 1776 and 1836, you saw the expansion of enslavement, not like what you had in the Caribbean. You saw the further liquidation of the indigenous population. You may have noticed that that's a major theme in the Mm -hmm. Texas book. And, of course, you had the further enrichment of a bunch of European settlers who naturally are celebrating and want us to accept their theory of the case, their narrative, so that we won't get upset and will continue to go along with the program. And I must say, they've been rather successful thus far uh, with that diabolical plot, but in some a uh, counter-revolution is a great leap backwards. A revolution is a great leap forward.
9: Yeah, thank you, and thank you, thank you for for clarifying that um, for us. And and as we move through, you know, this text, and again, um, the beauty of your work, all your work, is the um, detail and the references. Um, and I have to, I have. I don't have to, but I'm, I'm gonna ask because uh, as I was going through it, um, this one and 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 others, I was saying, um, would you say that um, to some degree that your approach and research is somewhat in relationship to your references, um, somewhat what the boys had done in using, you know, not just. The the primary text of letters and whatever, but the government documents and letters between the statesmen as it relates to developing how this whole process of United States considering taking in Texas and all I'm asking about the, the reference the government references that you use the voices of the policymakers and their strategic vision um, as it move as it moves into mo- look thinking and looking at Texas um, it was that important to your research work
10: well sure because y- y- you want the word from the mouth of those who are perpetuating deviltry
11: <laughs> and
10: you allow them to indict themselves as opposed to me having to indict them. Now, of course, I do indict them, but I usually indict them after I allow them to indict themselves. Uh, That is to say I allow them to put the mirror up before their ugly faces and reveal who they really are, and then I tell the reader this is who they really are. Mm. It's like certain teachers, when they teach nonfiction writing, They say in your opening, you tell the reader what you're going to explain to them in the chapter. Then you explain it. And then in the end, you tell the reader what you just explained to them. And so when you use these primary sources to use that term, that is to say the words of people like Sam Houston and Stephen F. Austin and the other... European settlers who ostentatiously gave their names to major cities such as Houston, Texas, and Austin, Texas, you use their words so they can be indicted. And so the reader, A, can does not necessarily have to accept your word for it because it's coming out of their mouth. And B, if they do not trust that I've quoted them correctly, I give the source in the footnote, they can go check it themselves to ensure, and then see uh, what I'm trying to do is create a foundation for further work, because history is a continuing story. Uh, there's an old saying amongst historians that our only obligation to his history is to rewrite it. And mm. that is to say that your grandchildren and your great grandchildren uh, may choose to rewrite this entire story, and I've provided them a roadmap as of today to allow them to do so. But keep in mind, one of the reasons why history has to be rewritten so frequently is that new sources arise. I mean, let let's imagine, for example, that we uncover a new diary of Sam Houston in 2024 well then that may shed new light upon what i have written in 2022 and so that's the process by which history is constructed
9: now okay go ahead yeah. go ahead yeah okay.
1: well no go ahead finish your thought because you was you was kind of go ahead and i'll, I'll kind of get in, get in behind you getting where i in. Way
9: and, and uh, the, as you were, you brought up Sam Houston, and as I was looking over, you know, the Texas, it's, it's a lot of 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 people, as you mentioned earlier, about the indigenous and uh, and and and, and I, I welcome so much to hear so many of these um, the indigenous names of, of of people that were you know had that were in these areas. But it's three: Sam Houston, and I'm going to use this. You use Washington. And then the Africans, can you, um, those three, and, you know, how does Texas, um, could you help us, you know, flush out, you know, Sam Houston's interests, um, Washington's interests, and how the Africans uh, seen that area that became Texas? Um, I I, I think that will help us get a general overview of, of what you were laying out
10: in the text. Well, let's start with the Africans because, in part, I wrote this book to help the black people in Texas and, indeed, the U.S. Uh, understand how we reach this dangerous point, whereas the subtitle suggests we're on the verge of fascism.
11: Mm.
10: And in terms of talking about the Africans, let's talk about the president of Mexico in the late 1820s, a man of African descent speaking of Vicente Guerrero, and in order to understand why Mexico had a president of African descent 200 years before Barack Obama, you may want to look at my book on the 16th century, but we don't have enough time to get into that. In any case, Mr. Guerrero uh, sought to abolish slavery in Mexico. Texas at that time was a province Of Mexico, or a state of Mexico, to put it in U.S. uh, phrasing, what happens is that many of the so-called Anglo settlers uh, in Texas, led by Sam Houston and Stephen F. Austin, were slaveholders. And so if Mexico is going to abolish slavery, the question then becomes, well, what happens to the most valuable property of the slaveholders? We we saw that during the U.S. Civil War, when slavery was abolished, the slave owners were not compensated. Their property was taken without compensation. In Jamaica and Trinidad and Barbados in the 1830s, when slavery was compensated, the slave owners when, – when slavery was abolished, the slave owners were compensated. And in fact, up until a few years ago, their descendants were still being paid off by London. And so – That idea of abolishing slavery was sufficient to cause the slave owners to rebel against Mexico, to secede from Mexico, not unlike what had happened in 1776 when George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, et al. thought, and I underline thought, that London was moving to abolish slavery in their colony the so-called 13 colonies, including Pennsylvania, where some of you are now sitting. And rather than wait around to see if that would happen, uh, they decided to kick out London, wage war, and then began to expand uh, enslavement. So that's the country, uh, the United States of America, in which we're now residing. And when I use the term Washington, that's the capital, as you know, due south of Philadelphia, of the United States of America. And I use Washington as a kind of synonym for the United States of America, a sort of shorthand, if you like. Mm-hmm. And so when Texas becomes an independent state, one of the points your audience needs to realize is that Texas wanted to challenge the United States of America. Uh, that is to say, it wanted to challenge it in terms of seizing more territory from Mexico and becoming larger than the United States of America, and perhaps eventually swallowing the United States of America. Well, we all know what happened. That didn't happen. The United States wound up swallowing Texas, in part because Texas could not stand up to abolitionist forces. That is to say, forces who wanted to abolish slavery, led by revolutionary Haiti, to which we all owe a debt of gratitude. And to assistance, we should all arrive and come because it was the actions of revolutionary Haiti that helped to put so much pressure on Texas that Texas felt compelled to crawl into the United States of America as the 28th state in 1845 and liquidate its independence, which was a step forward for abolition of slavery because during Texas's brief reign, these folks were wild men in terms of enslaving Africans. The Lone Star Flag of Texas could be found off the coast of Angola and Southwest Africa, off the coast of Brazil, which was the largest market for the enslaved, off the coast of Texas. And so when they combined with the United States of America, it did help to create a powerhouse for a time. But what happens, as you know, is that in 1861, the enslaving states led by Texas decided that they were going to overthrow the Lincoln government and instead were defeated and they lost their most valued property, the enslaved.
1: Dr. Horn, let let me kind of follow behind Richard with that question and then get you to uh, kind of help the listening audience because being that we don't, these things are not taught to our people in school and some of our people don't know this information. We kind of just go along with the go along, so to speak. And I'm saying that in reference to the state of Texas being an independent nation for nine years before they came into the quote unquote union of the United States, they were independent republic. And I, I want to make sure, because I, if I go off the track, I want you to pull me back in.
11: <laughs>
1: now, um, H- Houston was considered the president of that country, wasn't he? For a while. Okay. Now, they send an embassage to Washington, D.C. To, lob- right. to lobby for statehood, and based on their cotton production and things of that nature, and... They, they got kind of rebuffed because of the political uh, ramifications of bringing in another slave state. They wanted to keep that quote-unquote balance. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. then the, the United States was kind of forced into action because Britain kind of made overtures towards them, being that they were a separate country, so to speak,
11: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: which mm-hmm. forced the United States' hand the United States at that time. The, the thing is, the you had older states, uh, Mississippi, uh, uh, Georgia, Alabama, South Carolina, all the southern states that had our ancestors there. But just in a little brief period, you see that Texas amassed a huge number of our ancestors to where, uh, if I'm, you correct me if I'm wrong, they have more of blacks living in Texas than any other state in the Union. Today. And our people didn't go there because uh, it was a shipyard or it was jobs or something like that. A lot of our people were there because we were enslaved there. And that kind of mm-hmm. leads to uh, the the issue of, of uh, G- uh, Juneteenth. I'm going to hold off on that. We'll get to that later on in the conversation. But I just wanted mm-hmm. you to kind of really go into how our people – end up in texas when that state oh well it became a state later on was relatively uh uh, i don't want to say new to the slave trade but as far as the other states other southern states they didn't have the population of our ancestors but it exploded during a short period of time can you help us with that
10: well sure you are correct it definitely exploded and it happens for a number of factors One, as noted, as an independent state, Texas was upset like a maniac with kidnapping Africans and bringing them into the Lone Star State. That's the first factor. Then the second factor is, is that Texas was competing with the United States of America for wealth and power, and so they began to offer deals to enslavers in Mississippi, in Louisiana, in Alabama, to come with their most valuable property, the enslaved, uh, to Texas. Uh, There were all sorts of sweetheart deals. And this allows me to raise an important point in this book, which is that some of the bloodiest wars against the indigenous population, the Native American population were fought in Texas, in part because some of the best fighters amongst the indigenous were in Texas, speaking of the Comanches in the first instance, and, of course, the Apaches in West Texas in the second instance. And so what happens is that by attracting more settlers to Texas, they could put more rifles in their hands so that they could shoot and kill more indigenous population, and then, <clears throat> and then turn the weapons on the Africans and force them to work more intensely for free to produce more wealth so that more recruiting campaigns can be launched in Europe, for example, to d- d- drive more settlers across the Atlantic into <clears throat> Texas. Then to fast forward to the U.S. Civil War, 1861 to 1865, when the enslaving states try to seize it all, try to overthrow the Lincoln government in Washington. What I pointed out in this book is that Texas was likely the bulwark of the Confederate states of America, so-called, the enslaving states. It was the state that bordered Mexico and had a special relationship with Mexico. By this time, Texas's comrades in France had taken over in Mexico. I don't want to tip my hand to get into Juneteenth, but this is part of the backstory to Juneteenth, June 19th, which we'll be marking in a few weeks. And so what happens is that the ports in Mexico, such as Tampico, were allowed to ship into Texas, helping to keep Texas uh, more bountiful than most of the southern states. And so as South Carolina was collapsing, Georgia was collapsing, uh, Alabama was collapsing, this brings us to the other point where there are so many black people in Texas because what happens is the slave owners in those states began to flee west into Texas because it was doing better than most of those states, and that increases the black population uh, further. And so this helps to explain why in 2023, uh, Texas has more black people than any other state in the union, although it's important to note that overwhelmingly and disproportionately they're in the eastern part of the state. And you, you, you need to realize how large Texas is uh, a few years ago in doing research, I was driving from Eastern New Mexico, which of course borders West Texas into Texas. So you cross the border from Eastern New Mexico into West Texas and you see a sign that says Beaumont, Texas, 802 miles away. Now, 802 miles is as far from, say, New York to Chicago, for example. (laughs) We're talking about one state, for example, from West Texas to East Texas, 800 miles. And so this is a lot of land to take from Native Americans, which requires a lot of bullets. And also it helps to allow and helps us to understand why Texas has this voracious appetite for accumulating
1: the bodies of Africans. Dr. Horn, um, what you're mentioning is, uh, (laughs) it's new information for a lot of different people and including myself. But let me, let me ask this because it it helps me kind of understand what is going on during that period. And especially with our ancestors now, you have a separate nation a separate country a separate republic that wants to join the 50 state or the states at that time but they were uh, acting in their interests acting in their sovereign interests so when slave when the importation of our ancestors was was supposedly outlawed in the United States or in the states at that time I think it was 1808. Richard helped right. me get, get, get the, the early 18. 18- yeah. So when you mentioned earlier in the conversation with Richard that the lone star flag was being flown was in cheap. Cuba and in Brazil, are you telling me that they were doing their own import export of our ancestors from these continental quote unquote United States to other areas in the diaspora? Up until when? You tell me.
10: Oh, sure. I mean, you know, I I wrote a book on Cuba some years ago. And so I didn't repeat in this book what I'd written in the the Cuba book. But the Texas enslavers were quite energetic in bringing Africans into Cuba. One of the reasons you got so many black people in Cuba today Mm. is precisely because of this manic energy of the Texas enslavers you correctly suggest that supposedly, officially, the U.S. role in the slave trade was abolished in 1808. Now, uh, I've been made to understand that in Texas, for example, there are laws against marijuana. I've also been made to understand that people still smoke marijuana in (laughs) Texas. So just because there is a law that says no more importation of enslaved Africans that doesn't necessarily mean that that process ends, particularly if, for example, in certain states where you have district attorneys who are hostile to putting people in jail for marijuana, they decide to look the other way when marijuana is being smoked. So in the United States, they look the other way, <laughs> to put it mildly, when the law was broken, quote unquote, by bringing in uh, enslaved Africans. And then, then you get to, to the sort of shell game that many historians ha- have played. I'm sure you – I don't know if they still do. I remember when I was living in New York, you had these guys with the three-card money, and <laughs> you're supposed to find wh- wh- which one. Where's, where's the, the, the emblem under the shell? Where's the nut under the shell? They're moving their hands fast. So, so what happens is that – so the historians oftentimes tell us, that, yes, the United States abolished the slave trade, 1808. What they oftentimes neglect to mention is that once Texas is established in 1836, Texas then begins to ship the enslaved into Louisiana. They begin to ship the enslaved into uh, Mississippi and point eastward. And that's not included because... Texas is not part of the United States in 1836 up until 1845. So all those substantial, gargantuan numbers of Africans who arrive in the United States via the Texas connection, well, that's not the United States' fault. That's Texas's fault. Texas is an independent country. And so these are the sorts of games that are played uh, to help to throw dust in the eyes of our community and to help them misunderstand and misconceive how we arrived on these shores,
1: and that uh, you know that that kind of uh, sheds real light on when when we talk about the diaspora, uh, it's really a diaspora because you know our people here, our ancestors that were here, from what you're saying, was transported down to Cuba, was transported down to Brazil, and Brazil has the largest uh, black population of people of African descent outside of the continent. So Texas was doing huge business with our ancestors. I I just wanted you to kind of help our people with that because, you know, we see these states joining the U.N. They part of the 50 states. We don't know how they came in. We don't know the dynamic of what was going on. And you're helping us. You're helping all of us uh, get a real picture of what Europeans were doing at that time.
10: Well, there's a further point, too. You you probably know that some years ago I I wrote a book about Brazil, on the slave trade to Brazil. And I pointed out that one of the reasons why Brazil has the largest black population uh, west of Nigeria is precisely because of the manic energy of Texas enslavers and United States enslavers. Because just because (laughs) – the United States passed a law about uh, bringing enslaved Africans into the United States by 1808. Uh, supposedly, there were laws against bringing uh, enslaved Africans into Brazil, but how, the long arm of the law reaches quite far, but it's not easy to reach from North America into South America. And so what you need to realize as well that in that same book, And it continues in this book, the book we're discussing now, is that after the U.S. Civil War ended in 1865, slavery extended in Brazil until 1888. And so what happens is that you have Texas enslavers, in fact, U.S. enslavers, they flee North America for Brazil. You may have relatives in Brazil that you do not know about. (laughs) Thank you because that's we were like property. It's like you know being a chair or a table could be shipped from North America to South America where an African could be shipped from North America into South America.
1: I'm glad that you said that 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 kind of helps uh, a lot of different subjects that we deal with uh, richard
9: yeah, yeah, you know um. One thing, as I was looking through the book, and, and you give a lot of different um, um, liberating e- episodes of Africans moving themselves, um, can you expand on that? And I've seen a lot of movement from Louisiana into Texas to get to Mexico. What? what, what how do we, you know, from a historical perspective, how do we um, view that? Are these just small episodes? Are these uh, large How do we look at um, Africans who are trying to get into Mexico, as you had said earlier, because of Mexico's position of not um, supporting slavery?
10: Well, I would say that it's substantial. Uh, I would say that there were thousands of Africans who fled into Mexico from Texas. This is infuriating the slave owners in Texas because. As they see it, every African that flees, uh, particularly if they're a young man who is able, which is usually often the case, I should say, uh, that young man could be worth up to $1,500. That's when $1,500 was a small fortune. Some might even say it's a small fortune today. And so this is infuriating the slave-owning class. It's making them furious towards Mexico. It helps to fuel a war, yet another war against Mexico, 1846 to 1848. And as a result of that war, the United States walks away with California, which is today the most populous and wealthiest state in the United States of America, by some measures, the fifth largest economy on planet Earth. And so you are correct to uh, underline this point. Because oftentimes you think of slaves, the enslaved, uh, unpaid workers, to use the term oftentimes used today, of fleeing. You're talking about following the North Star to freedom from mm. the Carolinas and to Philadelphia or Canada, for example. And certainly that was a reliable route, but it was not the only route. Uh, another route, of course, was from Texas into Mexico for example. So I'm trying to revive that story, and I'm also trying to uh, underscore the question of rebelliousness because when I write about slavery in North America, I think you have to include its companion, which is rebellion against slavery in North America. Uh, I dare say that if we had not been so rebellious, it's a possibility we might still be enslaved today but we made the process so difficult for the enslavers. Uh, For example, recent research has talked about the role of black women in particular who develop a specialty in what you might call ethnobotany, developing, that is to say, poisoning the masters with plants in their food, for example, or, black women who specialize in arson, burning down the fields, burning down the house with all of the the enslavers and their families inside the house. Uh, This kind of rebellion helps to make the system misfire and become dysfunctional and helps to explain why the Civil War arrived and why eventually slavery was abolished.
9: Another point that you raised that the, the in relationship to Texas and uh, the whole and I don't know what the, the, the I'm gonna call it the capitalist formation of these different countries, England, um, Spain, um, and even France. And, and the one where you mentioned, you know, what you had just uh, referenced that um, where it says that cotton lands of Texas will yield three times as much cotton as the Carolina's. Georgia to the acre twice as much as to uh, as Alabama and from 40% more than the lands of Louisiana and Mississippi. What I'm trying to um, would like you to develop this relationship between the um, diplomats of Texas and England and the concern of Washington um, with England being an abolitionist, now not only Mexico being, you know, being seen as an abolitionist, but England being seen as an abolitionist, is how how do how do, you, how do we make that connection? Um, on one hand, uh, England is looking at the cotton that can be drawn from this um, enslaved labor for the looms, and on another hand, we're looking at how um, Um, The D.C., from its foreign policy perspective, is concerned about um, England's abolitionist position. You do develop that in in, in this book. Well,
10: it's just like the United States and apartheid. On the one hand, you have the administration of Ronald Reagan, who was pro-apartheid, who sought to veto the Comprehensive Anti-Apartheid Act of the 1980s. On the other hand, in Philadelphia and in many U.S. cities, you had a mass anti-apartheid movement, and that mass anti-apartheid movement ultimately was able to prevail and shape U.S. policy towards South Africa, leading to the erosion of apartheid in the election of Nelson Mandela in 1994. So likewise, to return to the Haitian Revolution, 1791 to 1804. If you look at your map, you'll see that one of Haiti's close closest neighbors is Jamaica. Jamaica was the cash cow of Great Britain, but with the Haitian Revolution, there was a real fear that the Africans in Haiti would either invade Jamaica and kick out <laughs> the enslavers, or otherwise support. A revolution in jamaica or alternatively britain can move towards the abolition of slavery which it did in the 1830s under pressure uh, from haiti and what happens is after britain abolishes slavery then they have to be concerned that their former pupil now rising rival speaking of the united states of america would gain an advantage over Great Britain by continuing to enjoy the bounty of enslaved labor. And so there is a faction in London that wants to see the abolition of slavery, not only in the United States, but in Texas as well. And so what happens is that you need to realize is that there are different factions, just like there are factions in the United States today. I mean, you have a a faction that's in favor of a war with China tomorrow, and you have a faction who thinks that's not a good idea, at least not for tomorrow. And so likewise, with regard to Great Britain, you had different factions. You had factions who were – in favor of the abolition of slavery, at least in the Americas. And you have some of these same people who were not necessarily in favor of the abolition of slavery as it existed in India, for example. So these are the complicated patterns that are unfolding in the 1830s. But to return to a theme, it's Haiti that ignites this entire abolitionist process. Oftentimes, when you read about the abolition of slavery, the people who actually abolished slavery are left out of the story. Mm. Instead, you, you, know, you get the idea that it's, you know, it's people in Manhattan or Philadelphia that are responsible for the abolishing of slavery, but actually it's the people in the Caribbean, more specifically the people of Haiti, the unpaid workers who decided to throw off their chains kick out the enslavers and then initiate a process that led to the abolition of slavery in the entire hemisphere.
9: You know, there's one thing, if I, if I may, I would, um, and Dr. Horn, you know, well, there's two things. One of the indigenous in relationship to the Africans. And I'm thinking of on one hand, the Cherokee and the Chikotals, and then later, um, the, the Comanches, which you had mentioned earlier, but one um, thought that struck me, and it struck me before, and this you know, is this, this when you're trying to get through something, uh, the thought came to me before I actually got to the chapter of how did Texas inform, and, and I'm asking this as a question did Texas inform um, or provide the, res- the, the need for the response of the Dred Scott decision? did I'm asking did texas have and what was going on in that section whether texas coming in as a state dealing with the whole question of you know the abolition of mexico and and england um what's happening the, the possibilities of cuba does that inform what um the Duke dred scott because i never hear this element brought to that but you do bring those
10: two together how well Briefly, the Dred Scott decision, as your audience may know, arises in the U.S. Supreme Court in 1857, and it has many aspects, but the bottom line is that the U.S. Supreme Court fundamentally says that black people cannot be citizens of the United States of America. Not only that, but as I suggest uh, in this Texas book, that even before the Dred Scott decision of 1857, when you had so-called free Negroes who would show up at the U.S. Embassy in Mexico or U.S. consulates in Mexico uh, seeking assistance, the U.S. diplomats were implementing a version of Dred Scott before 1857 saying, (laughs) we can't help you. You're a black person. You're not a citizen of the United States. You know, get out of here. And so what what happens is that the Dred Scott decision obviously infuriates uh, many black people. It basically is a signal to the free Negro population of which Philadelphia had more than a share at this point that there were those in the United States who felt not only that they should not be citizens, but perhaps they should even be uh, re As a matter of fact, one of the reasons why Haiti was so energetic in terms of seeking to abolish uh, slavery in the hemisphere is that the enslavers had come up with this idea that why should they send their ships all the way to Angola to kidnap Africans when you had all these Negroes in the Caribbean, such as in Haiti, who could be kidnapped. And in fact, as I talk about In some measure in the book, there are cases of free Negroes from the Caribbean who were kidnapped and dragged into slavery uh, in Texas, uh, for example. And so it's fundamental to suggest that really no black person in the United States was safe, Safe.
11: Mm -hmm.
10: excuse me, in the world, (laughs) excuse me, no black person in the world or certainly even in the United States, free Negroes in Philadelphia were not safe. Yes. As long as you had this system in Texas and and the rest of Dixie. And so this is creating momentum uh, for civil war, just like the Dred Scott case created momentum for civil war.
1: We're in conversation with, excuse me, we're in conversation with author, historian, and Morris professor of history and African-American studies. At the University of Houston, Dr. Gerald Horn is with us in discussion. The book, The Counter Revolution of 1836 Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the Roots of American Fascism. You can join the conversation too by dialing 215 490 9832, 215 490 9832. Before we break, Dr. Horn, I, I want to introduce this, and, uh, and I guess we'll continue the conversation after the break. Juneteenth. Um, and, and it's some things that you mentioned too, that I'm going to come back to, but I'm going to throw Juneteenth into this right now because, uh, June 19th, 1865, I think is the date when, uh, uh, the general went down there and issued this proclamation, uh, to our ancestors, great Granger. And, You know, a lot of folks, when they talk about Juneteenth, they they know at least that. But they don't know the dynamic, again, of what was going on. From what you describe in your book, and some of the things that we've discussed on the program, Texas had become a stronghold after the defeat of a lot of the Confederates to kind of amass and kind of uh, uh, regroup in Texas. So, It wasn't that our ancestors didn't get the word to 1865, even though that Emancipation Proclamation was issued a a couple of years before that. It was because they couldn't enforce it uh, during that period until uh, the time that it was was, uh, 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 said to our ancestors. And I also want to... Expand on the wording of that Juneteenth proclamation. But before that, give us a little historical background of that whole scenario dealing with Juneteenth.
10: Well, I think you've summed it up nicely. That is to say that January 6th, excuse me, January 1st, 1863, the so-called Emancipation Proclamation issued by President Lincoln, it had no merit. It had no strength in areas where the united states government was not operating it's it's as if congress uh, passed a law saying you know what we think slavery in mauritania and northwest africa should be abolished well unless the united states was willing to put boots on the ground and i'm not trying to give them any ideas (laughs) that would basically be uh, a, a nullity and certainly the emancipation proclamation january 1st 1863 was a nullity and a good deal of the South because the United States did not rule a good deal of the South, particularly Texas, because these states were in rebellion. The Emancipation Proclamation was a way to attract black men, in particular, away from the South so that they could join the Lincoln Army, which they did. In fact, unless because of the enlistment of about 200,000 Black men in the Lincoln army, the Lincoln government was able to defeat the Confederacy because they were not doing, the Lincoln government was not doing very well up until the Emancipation Proclamation. Yes. Which opened the door for these 200,000 black men to join the men in blue and defeat the Confederacy. So, first of all, understand that the Emancipation Proclamation really didn't have any purchase. In Galveston, Texas, uh, when General Granger shows up on June 19th, 1865. Now, I should say, quite quickly, that's the Port Juneteenth. Uh, I'm always in favor of having a day off, and this is a federal holiday, and I think it's worthy of support. But it's important to understand what actually happened, so that we are not seduced by fiction. Okay. And basically... The idea in Texas, as of June 19th, 1865, and keep in mind that Robert E. Lee, the supposed leader of the Confederate military, had surrendered in April 1865, a few months before June 19th. But Texas, as I said a few moments ago, was the most robust member of the Confederacy. Their allies, speaking of the French, had seized control of Mexico, and the idea was to roll back the abolitionist measure passed under the African president, Vicente Guerrero, in the late 1820s, and perhaps possibly uh, reinstall enslavement of Africans in Mexico and continue in the uh, continuation of in slavery in texas and so instead of that happening you see that general granger shows up he's able to have this uh, order that supposedly will then allow even more black men to join his ranks and they execute a pincers maneuver with progressive Mexicans to put a squeeze on the French-backed government in Mexico, and by 1867, the leader of that French-backed regime in Mexico is captured and executed, interestingly enough, on June 19, 1867, and it's fair to say that that second Juneteenth brings Abolition of slavery closer than the original Juneteenth, which will be marking in the United States in a few weeks. However, I should add very quickly that these diabolical and devilish exploiters of human labor then instituted a new kind of system after slavery was abolished, the so-called convict lease system, the remnants of which we're still enduring whereby black men in particular are arrested on flimsy charges and then leased out to work on sugar plantations, for example, and other plantations. In fact, there's a city outside of Houston called Sugarland, where many of these black men were worked to death. And in fact, only within the past few years, some of their bones were uncovered mm. from the field yes. of Sugarland, And anyway, I'll, I'll stop there.
1: You know, uh, uh, I'm glad that you said that because I wanted, before we take a break, I wanted to read just a portion of that proclamation to, to show, you know, Dr. King, we play a little vignette of Dr. of different voices and Dr. King says in one of the venues, we got to get the language right. I, I want to read just this, paragraph here and just get you to expand on it before we take our break. This was the proclamation given by Gordon Granger issued to our ancestors on June 19th, 1865. And it says the people of Texas are informed that in accordance with the proclamation of the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. This involves an absolute equality of personal rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves and the connection heretofore existing between them becomes employer and hired labor. The freedmen are advised to remain quiet at their present home and work for wages. They are informed that they will not be allowed to collect at a military post and they will not be supported in idleness, either there or elsewhere. So we see that according to this proclamation It was the relationship between our ancestors and Europeans were no longer master and slave, but employer and hired labor. Uh, Hell, help me with that, Dr. Horn, because that doesn't say that you're our ancestors always knew that they were men and they were equal with any other man. But the United States government issues a proclamation where you're no longer slave and slave master but employer and hired labor. What really is the difference besides you not getting hit on your back with a whip?
10: Well, it's actually worse than that dismal picture you have painted, I'm afraid to say. Okay. Because what happens post-Juneteenth is, and in fact, uh, I'm afraid to say that this, but the pockets of what I'm about to describe still exist albeit not with the same form. What I'm saying is that labor, being, working for free, continued after Juneteenth. So that order speaks of hired labor receiving wages. Oftentimes, labor did not receive any wages. And just as I said a moment or two ago, it's one thing to pass a law. It's another thing to enforce the law. And just like, as I said, some district attorneys have decided that they're not going to enforce the law with regard to prohibition of cannabis. Certain district attorneys then decided they were not going to enforce the law with regard to people uh, being illegal for people to work for free. And uh, I said that I I would suggest that Uh, you still have pockets of of enslavement in the United States of America. Now, admittedly, it's not like 1865. It's not like 1866. And in fact, uh, oftentimes, as a a, a notorious case in Los Angeles from a few years ago suggested, uh, these were immigrant workers who were locked into sweatshops and forced to work for free. And this reason we uncovered that It's because the sweatshop caught fire, and many of the immigrants died. I think that there is an insatiable thirst on the part of certain exploiters to force people to work for free. And it requires not only officers of the law to ensure that that does not take place. It requires a mass movement. Um, And as you know, the labor movement in this country – Philadelphia aside, is not as strong as it should be.
1: <laughs> We're going to take a brief break, and when we come back, you can get involved in the conversation by dialing 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. We're in conversation with our guest, author, historian, and Morris Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston, Dr. Gerald Horn. We'll be right back.
6: Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today 484-268-9837. Escape
13: the Digital Plantation. abibitumidotcom, abibitumidatv, abibitumitv.com, abibitumidatstore are here for you. You are ready to be free of non-African social media. Don't run from danger, run to safety. Abibitumi.com is here for you. You are ready to be free of digital plantations to control your own products. Abibitumi.store is here for you. A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I. Black Power. A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I. The only word you need to know to join your global commit to you black family To join your interconnected, commit to you black communities. Escape the digital plantation now. Abibitumi.com, Abibitumi.tv, Abibitumi.tv.com, Abibitumi.store. We are here for you. Escape the digital plantation. A new
2: era, a new phase of the struggle where we have moved from a struggle for decency, which characterized our struggle for ten or twelve years to a struggle for genuine equality. And this is where we are getting the resistance because there was never any intention uh, to go this far. People were reacting to Bull Connor and to Jim Clark rather than acting in good faith for the
14: realization of genuine equality. Do you think white people in this country, and I'm talking about non-segregation, as people devoid or thinking they're devoid of racism. Do you have any idea of what they want the Negro to be in America? I think the vast majority of white Americans
2: uh, will go but so far. It's a kind of installment plan for equality. And uh, they're always looking for an excuse uh, to go but so far.
15: And know that this problem needs to be solved and we can't keep
3: Whites are expert game players in their contests to maintain absolute power. One of their time-honored gimmicks is to point to individual blacks who've achieved recognition. But look at Ralph Bunch. Think about Lena Horne or Mary Anderson. Look at Jackie Robinson. They made it as one of those who has made it. I would like to be thought of as an inspiration to our young But I don't want them lied to. Name them for me. Examples of blacks who made it. For virtually everyone you name, I can give you a sordid piece of factual information on how they have been mistreated, humiliated. Not being able to fight back is a form of severe punishment.
2: I come here tonight and plead with you. If the Negro is to be free, he must move down into the inner resources of his own soul and sign with a pen and ink of self-asserted manhood his own emancipation (laughs) proclamation. Don't let anybody... Take
12: your manhood. Time for an awakening is a proud part of the Black Talk Radio Network, the number one independent black digital and podcasting platform.
1: Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. It's eight seventeen here in the Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening, eight seventeen in the city of Philadelphia. And our guest this evening. In conversation, author, historian, and Moore's professor of history and African American studies at the University of Houston, Dr. Gerald Horn is with us. The dis- dis- discussion centers around the book, The Counter Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow, and the Roots of American Fascism. Again, you can join the conversation by dialing 215 490 9832. That's 215 490 9832. Richard.
9: Yeah, you know, um, and, and to those, um, I want to thank um, Sister Nina, and, and once again, let you know, um, on Dr. Horn, that um, Sister Nina, and that's just not her, but those on the um, that are in Clubhouse that are listening um, to the exchange. And I have to say, even though it. You know, um, people. You know, it's always interesting how how we do, right? You know, we'll we'll go through I'll go through the texts. We'll have debate and discussions, you know, um, amongst ourselves and resolve our interpretation of a historical narrative so we can better, um, you know, um, better shield ourselves in functioning. But um, here we have the opportunity, and I just wanted to throw that out that for those who are listening, that they can call in too. But I, I wanted to veer from the book to ask you a question, in another group that I'm in, and I want to take this opportunity, if you don't mind, um, we'll be coming up on the what they call it the cent the 250th anniversary <laughs> of of the celebration of of American the American Revolution, and based off of you know, and you mentioned, and you really chronicle our experience through the series of books in this particular in dealing with Texas and, and looking from, and you, you really took us from not just 1836, but moved us into already into the the turn of the century um, in the 1920s. (laughs) In your view, how do we, how, how do based off of this text, should we look at 200 from our vantage point as a historian, this 250th years of sojourn in America under these conditions is that appropriate question to ask you?
10: Well, it, it certainly is. And what we should do is replay James Earl Jones' version of Frederick Douglass's significant speech on July Fourth, 1852 mourning the development of this nation now known as the United States of America, because basically uh, it was a nation constructed to keep us enslaved, a nation constructed to perpetuate uh, our exploitation. And to the extent that that has not worked, it wasn't because of the declaration of independence. It's because we fought We struggled. We developed alliances, for example, with revolutionary Haiti. And in fact, what we should be marking and what we should be doing is repaying the debt we owe to revolutionary Haiti, which has been plunged into really uh, dire straits right now in no small measure because it paid such a heavy price by being in the vanguard of those seeking to overthrow this hateful system of enslavement. And that's how I think we should mark this 250th anniversary, by replaying James Earl Jones, reading Frederick Douglass' speech, by redoubling our activism, not least with regard to solidarity with Haiti, and also by seeking to ensure that our grandchildren will not have to endure the kinds of indignities that we're forced to endure in 2023
11: you know,
9: if, I, if I may Elliot and and going and I appreciate that um, as we're we're here in Philadelphia, we're wrestling with that question and and you were one of the persons we wanted to ask to to you know just to help us. Navigate what we would do, lo- what we should be looking at to do locally. But when I, um, one of the things that I mentioned before, that was in the text, that um, the indigenous nations, um, because it seems to be a, uh, 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 as I go as I went through the text, it seems to be a, a, a conflicting relationship with mm-hmm. the enslaved, and mm-hmm. and I think that that's that's um, this conflict because I, I understand the. We said the five civilized nations, but when we mm-hmm. look at the vantage point of Texas, we're, we're, we're dealing with a, a, a whole other uh, indigenous nations and how they relate. Can you help us, you know, um, put this in context of our relationship with the different nations and, and, and what that meant in that moment as Texas is forming as a nation and as it becomes a part of the state?
10: Well, first of all, it's difficult to throw a blanket over all of the indigenous nations. We're talking about scores, hundreds, some say thousands of indigenous nations who populated North America before the European invasion. And so you have to draw distinctions between and amongst them. I mean, for example, you have the CADO, C-A-D-D-O who in some ways have an interlocking directorate with black people. That is to say, uh, you have black people who are, in, in a sense, in the leadership of that particular indigenous nation. And there's a long footnote in the book talking about how often black people were interpreters for indigenous nations. That is to say, they spoke English and they spoke the language of the indigenous And when you're the interpreter, that gives you a certain amount of strength and power. And then you have, on the other end of the spectrum, you have indigenous nations who are trying to assimilate to settler culture. Uh, They convert to Christianity. They become sedentary farmers. Sometimes they build mansions. And sometimes they enslave Africans. And this was particularly so... For the Cherokee, one of the so-called civilized tribes, and of course they were called civilized precisely because they were seeking to assimilate up to and including enslavement of Africans. But what's striking is that that process of assimilation did not save many of these indigenous people. They were still forced to abandon their mansions, even. And and see, this is where you get to, to, to the essence of U.S. history, because You had Cherokees in Georgia who were forced at gunpoint out of their mansions. And then you had Europeans fresh off the boat who can move in. Now, that's what's really meant by the so-called American dream. (laughs) That is to say, it was racially coded. Uh, You had to be extremely deficient of melanin in order to enjoy the bounty. And you could do very well. I mean, you could move into a mansion fresh off the boat. Which is uh, something extraordinary. And then the Cherokee and other indigenous were forced on the Trail of Tears. They had to walk and otherwise uh, somehow get themselves from Georgia to Oklahoma, which, as you know, is a long distance. Look at your map. And Oklahoma then was called Indian Territory, supposed to be the land of the Indians. And interestingly, the U.S. authorities put the land of the Indians not accidentally on. Texas's northern border, because it was meant to sort of tie down the Texas, who, I, as I said, had pretensions of somehow swallowing the United States, perhaps destabilizing the United States, taking over the United States. But that would become much more difficult with uh, restive indigenous on their borders. And even in the land of the Indians, what becomes Oklahoma, they still had enslaved Africans. Now, During the U.S. Civil War, the indigenous split in Oklahoma. Some of them supported the Lincoln government. Some of them supported the Confederacy. In fact, one of the last Confederate generals to um, surrender was a Confederate general by the name of uh, Stan Wati, W-A-T-I-E. Now, interestingly enough, this is a trivial footnote, he named one of his sons Saladine. You know, that that name may register with some of you. He was the uh, Muslim leader who famously defeated the Christians about a millennium ago. I always found that interesting. Why he would name one of his sons Saladin, but in any case, uh, what happens after slavery is abolished is that the indigenous slavers were forced to give up much more of their property to their enslaved Africans, and that's one of the reasons why you had so many black people doing well in Oklahoma. Oklahoma becomes a state in 1907. And then, of course, I fast forward to 1921 with the Tulsa Massacre, 1921, when hundreds, perhaps thousands of black people were killed. Um, Some It is suggested that many of the Euro-American settlers were jealous of the property that they had accumulated, Part of the property being that, as I said, they were able to get a kind of reparation from their enslavers that folks in the Carolinas were not able to get. But alas, with the Tulsa massacre of 1921, their property was taken as well by the settlers, forcing many of these affluent black peoples to flee uh, for the four corners of the planet.
9: You know it's it's, it's interesting, Elliot and, I, I, and and Dr. Horn, and I know we want to go to the uh, to the callers and and also uh, I know your time is limited, but it's so much in this book that um, I think and 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 I and it's because Cuba is involved, because Brazil is involved, and as you and you also and I didn't get a chance to get to it yet, but your your book in relationship to South Africa. Um, you know, um, oh, and, and you, you meant, you know, you mentioned, um, other that you have this work and how you have pulled it all together, but the thing that got me and is getting me now is, um, and I'm a little confused about it too, the church of the Latter Day Saints, oh, yeah. I know they come up, they come up a lot, right? Right. And, and, and if I'm not mistaken, y'all help me out. Isn't they the ones that got control of the, uh, the um, something to deal with the database in relationship to when you're looking at um, looking for your genealogy? But, mm-hmm. that, but that, that aside, and, and this, this is important for where we are now, but that aside, can you just, um, because of their influence at this time, is it because of their relationship to how Washington, D.C. is view- viewing this population? Or is it because how this population is entwined into the Texas you know, story that um, they're so incorporated in, in, in the historical narrative?
10: Well, the Church of Latter-day Saints, or the Mormons, as they're oftentimes referred to, <laughs> yeah. who, as you know, heavily populate today's state of Utah in the mountain west of the united states it's a fascinating case so this is an indigenous protestant sect to use that term sect that develops in the northeast of the united states but they keep getting chased out of the northeast they get chased into illinois Uh, that is to say uh, other european settlers don't like them for various reasons the various reasons Or many. One reason is because they were polygamous, that is to say, one man could have more than one wife. And secondly, which is interesting in in terms of their subsequent evolution, at times they were more liberal, more progressive with regard to black people than the settlers were. And uh, <laughs> a- a- at times, believe it or not, uh, they would wink at, or at least let, let me let me put this in, and let me let me use a few adverbs. Reputedly, reportedly, they would wink at the possibility of a black man having more than one Euro-American wife. Now. I'm, I'm not going to make any jokes about oh. that nowadays, but I'm sure if a sister were to get on the line, she would have something to say about that. But in any case, so they kept moving west. They, 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 then they moved outside of Kansas City. They were chased out of there. And then they decided to move into what was Mexican territory, which is what Utah was at that time. But what happens is about by 1848, the United States had taken over Mexico. And then... A bitter war erupted between the Church of Latter-day Saints and the government in Washington, D.C. It was somewhat analogous to the conflict that Texas had with uh, Washington, D.C. And so what happens is that the Church of Latter-day Saints, they thought that they could make an alliance with the Texas settlers against the United States of America. Uh, They thought that they could make an alliance with other foreign powers against the United States of America, which is very interesting because today, of course, we know that the Mormons are some of the most conservative people in the United States of America. They consider themselves to be highly patriotic. Uh, As part of, of their missionary activity, they learn foreign languages. Mitt Romney, you may recall he ran against Mr. Obama in 2012 as a Republican nominee. Uh, He learned French, although he hit that during the 2012 campaign because France was not very popular then, because he did a mission um, in a French-speaking territory in order to recruit uh, for uh, his faith. And so the Mormons, as a result of their uh, linguistic ability, oftentimes they're found heavily in the higher ranks of the CIA, for example, uh, because they're multilingual. But which is, and and then of course you might recall what happened a few decades ago, when the black football players at the University of Wyoming, for example, refused to play Brigham Young University, which is sort of like Notre Dame as a Catholic university. Brigham Young is a mostly Mormon university, and at that time Mormons, had, because they were adapting and seeking to assimilate, not like not unlike the Cherokees, they had come up with this idea that black people would be secondary, uh, would be inferior within the ranks of Mormonism. And that caused many black football players to boycott playing Brigham Young University. And so the leader of the church then had a revelation to say that, you know what, we need to move away from that principle, and therefore the uh, boycotts uh, cease to occur. You are correct to suggest that as part of their religion, the Mormons have a very significant database. Uh, Of genealogy Uh, In in fact Anybody interested in genealogy uh, Usually they feel compelled To uh, consult the Mormon sources Or Church of Latter-day Saint sources It's a very fascinating story Uh, I should also mention That despite this abolitionist trend So-called within Mormonism In the 1840s There were Mormon enslavers. There were Mormon exploiters of Africans. And in fact, uh, if you go to the early history of California, for example, after the United States takes over in 1848, some of the earliest settlers in Southern California are in fact Mormons with enslaved Africans in tow. Mm.
1: Uh, we go, we're going to go to a couple of calls and I want to come back because there's a couple of things I want to th- uh, throw into the mix. Let's go to 215. 215. 215, are you there? Let's go to
11: 646.
8: 646. Hey, what's going on? Um, Brother Elliot Dr. Horn and um, Richard. Um, I don't know if you heard this or not, man, but I would like to um, pass on some sad news. Um, It seems that um, Attorney Alton Maddox has made his transition. Oh, wow. Too bad. becoming an ancestor. Wow.
10: You know, I I work with Alton Maddox. I mean, before... uh, I know uh, that. Yeah, before I drifted into this history field, I was doing law. We both worked at the Office of the National Conference of Black Lawyers, 126 West 119th Street in Harlem. Uh, Alton was, for those who do not know, Alton was a real fighter. I mean, uh, he was a real fighter. Particularly, that's one of the reasons why uh, the state went after him. They took away his law license because he was a fighter in court against racism, and he was punished and pulverized and sanctioned as a result, but he still fought. And it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a real loss when a brother like Alton passes from the scene.
8: Well, I, I would just like to say I, I knew Alton for, I'd say, like maybe 40 years. Um, One of the greatest legal minds that has ever been produced. You know, I laugh sometimes when I see this character, um, Ben Crump, and uh, what he does. And I think about Alton, and I think about one of the first cases that I ever became aware of Alton was was the individual who I went to um, school with that changed the laws for juveniles in um, New York, New York State, Willie Boston. And um, I'll never forget, man. I was in the courtroom when Alton and Willie. Had gathered to uh, altercation with the court officers. It was, it was amazing, man. And over the years, just having the opportunity to talk to them, to I think I may have even seen you um, at the slave theater, Dr. Horn. I'm not sure. I think I think I um, do a lecture, you know, because I, I know I'm seen you do one or two lectures. Before, But, you know, we should really take into consideration the sacrifice that Alton gave for our people, man. You know, they talk about Thurgood Marshall and some of the other great lawyers. But I would say this. I would put Alton Maddox right there with them as far as being the great legal mind, because he, he was a hell of a strategist when it came down to this law thing. And, and, and I'll just give you a perfect example of the greatness of um, Alton. You know, they always talk about the Central Park Five, but there was other youth that was involved in that also that they really don't talk about. Well, one of those youth, Alton, was their attorney. And Alton, from the beginning, knew that this was a setup. And he told the other attorneys in the case, look, we need to call for an immediate trial to take this to immediate trial. Well, unfortunately, none of those attorneys Listen to Alton. Alton was the only one who requested an immediate trial. And do you know the youth that he represented was one that was not convicted? All because the strategy of an immediate trial, because Alton knew it was a setup. And by him calling for that immediate trial, He did not allow them to do to that child what the other attorneys did to them, five young men. So when you think about Altamatics, and I hope some of my people out there know and understand who Altam was, he was one of the greatest African legal minds there ever was. But, you know, really, I I had wanted to ask you a a question, Dr. Horn. You know, I've listened to you for for years. I agree with most of what you say. But my question at this time, with all of the studies that you've done, all of the writing which you've done, all of the analysis that you put forward, What is the position of black people in this country at this time? Because I feel white people are using their use for us. We have no institution. We have nothing in place to when White folks make that commitment that they want nothing more to do with us. Will we be able to survive? Well, it's a good question.
10: I mean, I think that the answer is unclear, but. I think that there are certain institutions. Admittedly, these institutions are vulnerable. I think of our institutions of higher education, for example. I have a book coming out on Washington, D.C. in a few days. And needless to say, Howard University plays a preeminent role in this book. I'm reading another book right now on Atlanta, on Black Atlanta. You can't talk about Black Atlanta without talking about Morehouse and Spellman the Atlanta University Center, et cetera. So there are some substantial black institutions, but you are correct to raise alarm bells about our future, not only because of the specter of war, which is always looming in a country like this, which can not only mean our destruction, but the destruction of the planet, but also because we were brought here because of our labor, And what's happening now with the scientific and technological revolution and the development of chat, GPT, artificial intelligence, et cetera, is our labor is becoming increasingly superfluous. And that's not even talking about the ultimate impact of the internet. I mean, for example, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal a few days ago on the work from home phenomenon, you know, that. With the uh, pandemic, uh, many people began to work from home uh, (laughs) using the internet, and then bosses are coming to the conclusion that, wait a minute, if I'm paying you to sit at home before your screen, I could pay a worker in India or the Philippines to sit in their home with the internet and work at their screen and pay them a quarter less than I'm paying for you. And so those of us who work who sell our labor for a wage. And I include myself in that category. Uh, we have some real challenges going forward and given the nature of white supremacy and given the fact that black people tend to be seen as the ultimate outlaw and the ultimate enemy of the state, uh, this puts us in even more jeopardy. but what I've been counseling, you know, you said you've been listening to some of my lectures, but well, you know that I always stress a seeking international allies, seeking allies outside the United States, just like we, in slavery, we saw allies in Haiti. And in the 20th century, we sought allies also outside of the United States.
8: Well, you know, you know, I definitely know that's what you what you talk about, and that's what I preach. I, I always tell the young kids that I deal with to learn as many basics of other languages, always look to other places, always get a skill that will allow you to go other places and be able to integrate into that society. But, you know, Let me just say this. I mean, you were talking about Atlanta. You were talking about these black colleges. But when you put it into its most honest context, those places can't take up or place black people in a position of survival because they don't have the capacity to employ black people. I don't even know, in all honesty, if we have a company in this country that's black owned that could hire a thousand black people at one time. So, you know, black colleges, to be honest, are not producing the thought leaders that they should be because they're training them to serve white folks. They're not training them to serve African people. So, I mean, you know, to be honest with you, Dr. Horn, I think men like yourself are going to have to call other men like yourself. And we're going to have to change the way that we think and how we gonna move forward as a people because to be honest with you, your divine nine, your sororities, and your fraternities are basically black jokes. They're not producing anything of substance and honest valuable. They're not coming together to build institutions. They're not doing the necessary things to help with the survival of black people, if white people ever say the hell with you. Because remember, and this is my last point there's people here that's already in a position to replace us. They have community, they have businesses, they're collectively as one when it comes down to their survival. And lastly, they have probably the most important thing a relationship with from which they come from thank you dr horn
1: thanks for your contribution bro
8: peace
1: he, he, uh, that last sentence he raised a good a good uh a heck of a point uh dr horn um <clears throat> coming up on the uh, two hours and i know with the we uh We kind of held you over, but uh, you still got a few minutes to stay with us?
10: Yeah, sure. Go ahead.
1: Good. Dr. Horn, I want to, um, because Richard raised about the indigenous population or the native folks of this land, and I want to talk about it in relation to us from a different angle, and then I'm going to play a clip that I want your insight on because there's a couple of things said in this particular clip. That, that trouble me. You know, after the, um, well, let me, let me, this has nothing to do with what I want to say. I'll come back to what I want to say in relation to us and the indigenous population. Lincoln and what he did in relation to black people. You know, he said in prior speeches that he really didn't favor the abolishing of slavery. Now, when he met with our ancestors in that meeting that they had with the first time that the uh, uh, blacks had been at, at the white house or the Capitol, or I think that they met at the white house when he threw it through the suggestion at them about uh, gathering enough of their people to go to central America. And it, it, it didn't work. I think they ended up sending them to an island off the coast of Haiti. Uh, and the guy that did it, uh, he was uh, pulled up, pulled a fast one. But anyway, I, the people that was left holding the bag or stranded was some of our ancestors. But I didn't notice until recently that up until three days before he was assassinated, he was coming up with an idea to send free Africans to Texas. Dr. Horn, do you get can you expand on that before I ask the other thing that I want to talk about?
8: Well,
10: as you probably know, the reputation of Lincoln has been, shall we say, revised in recent
11: years. <laughs> okay.
10: Uh, it started with Larome Bennett. You recall the late Larome Bennett, an editor at Ebony Magazine. He wrote this book, Forced into Glory. I think it's subtitled Abraham Lincoln's White Dream, something like that. And yeah. he goes into all of the attempts by Lincoln when he was president to get rid of the black population of North America. I've written about this too. Okay. In my book on Brazil, I talk about how he was negotiating with the Brazilians to ship us there. Uh, He was negotiating with uh, Ecuadorians to send us there. We barely escaped being shipped into the Caribbean. Uh, You you talked about this, this journey that some of our folks took to this uh, island off the coast of Haiti, for example, he was negotiating with the Dominican Republic, which, as you know, shares the island of Hispaniola uh, with uh, Haiti, And historically in the United States, going back to Jefferson, the idea had been to ship black people west of the Mississippi River. This is before the United States took over west of the Mississippi River. And uh, the idea was that uh, there could be no peace as long as black people resided alongside these European settlers yes. because supposedly we would be so resentful and so angry and whatever so yes yeah, Lincoln's reputation has been downgraded shall we say
1: the the, the other thing that, that uh, Richard brought up about the relationship of uh, uh, African uh, diaspora here in this country and the Native Population of this land. The thing that uh, kind of and and I and I realize maybe it was Stockholm syndrome, or maybe you got another way you you can put it, Doctor Horn. But to get our people involved, and maybe it was their uh, blind allegiance to uh, the Union Army helping free some of our ancestors but being, it wasn't the Union Army necessarily. It was our folks in those blue uniforms. We had an allegiance to join forces with Europeans to uh, displace Native Americans from their land.
11: Mm.
1: Um, and, and, and you talked about in a, uh, a, a clip that I saw that some of our ancestors during Reconstruction uh, went along with a lot of these things. Mm-hmm. Now, now I see them, and I, and I want you to kind of uh, deal with this. But I see our ancestors during that period as a lot different than the generation that you see now. And when I say generation, I'm talking about maybe some of these representatives over the past twenty, twenty five years. That the the our ancestors during that period that became lawmakers was really interested almost totally devoted into helping our people get on their feet and to be educated and to be able to function in this society that we have been thrust into. Um, But there, uh, I don't know, uh, blind allegiance or, or, or obligation to go along with the exterminating of native people. How do you see that, Dr. Horn? It just just give me your opinion on that, and then I want to play a clip to get your opinion on what's said.
10: Well, I talk about that in the book, and I, I consider it to be one of the most inglorious, one of the most dismal episodes in our uh, otherwise glorious history. Uh, it was inexcusable, in my opinion, for black people to join in with the Buffalo soldiers and routing indigenous. In fact, I talk about in the Texas book, how in East Texas you have black people seeking to protect uh, their brothers, their sisters and brothers from being routed by the Ku Klux Klan uh, to their credit. That's what black soldiers were doing, at least for a while. And then in West Texas, you had black soldiers who were routing the indigenous population. And I think that that was a blunder. Uh, that was a mistake. I think we need to own up to it. I think that we should have a, some sort of collective apology uh, to those indigenous people who fell victim to the rampaging of the so-called Buffalo soldiers, and as I said, I don't think ultimately was in our
1: interest. I want to play this clip, and it's, uh, it was during uh, a forum that they had at the UN in reference to uh, racism. Um, Linda Thomas Greenfield is speaking, and I I just want you... I want your opinion on something that she said. It's about a four minute clip and it's a couple of things in there that kind of troubled me. And it troubled me because these people are in a position where they can help our people and they're supposed to know certain things. I mean, I'm not saying that everybody in those positions are smart, but they're supposed to be able to, uh, to navigate, uh, dealing with, uh, other folks, uh, to use language in the proper fashion but sometimes I notice that they use language to try to mask things that's going on. Just, I just want to play this clip to get the, you and Rich's opinion on uh, something that she said here during this. Uh, oh, boy. Hold it. I just had it. Uh, International Day of uh, of Elimination of Racism that they held in March of 2021 at the U.N. This is uh, Linda uh, Thomas-Greenfield, if I can get this
3: thing you. Here it is. Now give the floor to the distinguished representative of the host country, the United States. Thank you, Mr. President.
16: Thank you for convening us to commemorate this important day. And I thank the Secretary General, Madam High Commissioner, and Dr. Iwala for your leadership in pressing us all to do more toward the elimination of racial discrimination wherever and by whomever. I grew up in the segregated South. I was bused to a segregated school, and on weekends, the Ku Klux Klan burned crosses on lawns in our neighborhood. When I was in high school, I was asked by a little girl for whom I babysat. If I was an N-word because her dad had used that word for me, I know the ugly face of racism. I lived racism, I have experienced racism. I learned the simple truth. Racism is not the problem of the person who experiences it. Those of us who experience racism cannot and should not internalize it despite the impact that it can have on our everyday lives. We must face it down every time, no matter whom it's directed towards. Racism is the problem of the racist. And it is the problem of the society that produces the racist. And in today's world, that is every society. And in so many of our communities and countries, racism is endemic. It's built... It's built in like a a rot in a frame. And it remains, and it festers, and it spreads because many of those in charge allow it to. Others look away and pretend it's not there, but like a cancer, if ignored, it grows. In America, conducting that review requires a reckoning, a reckoning with our dark history of chattel slavery. 402 years ago, African slaves were forced onto the shores of the colony of Virginia. Two years ago, the 1619 Project brought attention to this anniversary and put the consequences of slavery and the contributions of black Americans back at the center of our history and of our national narrative. As the project detailed, slavery is the original sin of America. It's weaved white supremacy and black inferiority into our founding documents and principles. But even though slavery is our original sin, America is not the original source of slavery. Others share this shame with us. Slavery has existed in every corner of the globe. Africans enslaved fellow Africans long before the American colonists existed. And sadly, in many places around the world, slavery still exists today.
1: Now, I'm going to stop it there. Uh, Dr. Horn, there's a couple of things that trouble me there. Because when she's talking about racism, she talks about it in generic forms. Uh, racism, racism exists everywhere and, and whoever she never says who's conducting or propagating this racism. Even when she talked about what she uh, experienced as a child, a little girl at school, things of that nature, but it's, it's never, but she was quick to point out about African involvement in the slave trade it was a finger pointed then at africans but no finger i never heard the word european mentioned in anything she said she always kept saying we like black folks wasn't involved in racism racism is a, is a intertwined in the fabric of our nation uh, like it's some type of generic disease that you don't know where it comes from and she mentioned that the abuse of our ancestors was this nation's original sin. That's, that, that's not true in my estimation. Because before our ancestors stepped foot on this shore, they had already came here and destroyed the native population, was in the process of destroying it, taking their lands and eliminating them from their land. So if you're talking about an original sin that Europeans did on this Western continent, that's what it was. They just added to it and what they did to our ancestors. But I was saying that in reference to how she worded this, what she was saying. And oh, and another thing she mentioned, the 1619 project. We talked about it on our program because I, I didn't read the, The essays, but I did see the documentary series, six episodes. And it gave the impression that our people were all the time during our struggle that we struggled to be recognized as citizens and struggled to be a part of this American project, so to speak. The rebellion part of it was never mentioned, it was never stressed. And I think that you do uh, ancestors a disservice when you don't talk synonymously about us being here and synonymously with the rebellion of our ancestors. But I, I just wanted your opinion in reference to what she said, Dr. horn because a lot of things she said did trouble me there. Well, it was obviously problematic.
10: Uh, I, I have objected to that original sin concept uh, on t- occasions too numerous to mention because, as you correctly suggest, It basically avoids and evades the question of indigenous genocide and dispossession. I mean, it's quite remarkable how that sleight of hand takes place. Once again, we're back to Times Square and the the old shell game. (laughs) Uh, The other point that I would mention is that she was seeking to dilute and disperse responsibility of the United States. For racism, by saying everybody is racist, yes, you know, and therefore, why are you looking at the United States? Everybody's racist, you know. That's uh, another kind of shell game. And then, with regard to slavery, uh, she's playing upon the ignorance, I assume, of the audience, because slavery was, and to a degree, is a socio-economic formation, not unlike feudalism, capitalism, socialism. And so virtually every group on planet earth at some point has gone through slavery. But what she failed to mention is the pernicious nature of slavery in the United States of America, cattle slavery, uh, treated like furniture. I mean, for example, um, You may recall the Saudi ambassador to the United Nations during the George W. Bush years, uh, Prince Bandar, uh, a melanin-rich man, and also quite rich. Uh, His private plane was painted the colors of his favorite football team, the Dallas Cowboys, silver and blue. Now, he was a descendant of an enslaved family in Saudi Arabia, but in other parts of planet Earth, it's not as if you had the same kind of slavery that you had in the United States of America. Okay. It was not as harsh. It was not as pernicious. It's not to say that I'm endorsing it. I'm just saying that relatively it was not as terrible or horrific as the United States of America. And Ambassador Greenfield, the descendant, I assume, the descendant I assume of enslaved Africans, should acknowledge that. I mean she should not allow her paycheck from the U.S. government to obscure – a reality and cause her to try to throw dust in the eyes of her audience. And also, uh, I agree with you with regard to this idea that black people in the United States historically have sought to be included in the U.S. project. Uh, this, and this, this will sort of conclude where we began. At, at one point, uh, perhaps your offspring or the offspring of your offspring will do a study that will show that there are black people who have roots in the United States all over planet Earth because we have historically tried to flee this country as opposed to try to be included in this country. And when your offspring or the offspring of your offspring does that study, perhaps we can then dispense with this idea that we have always strived to be included in the U.S. project.
1: Let's go to 602. 602?
17: Yes, uh, uh, Brother Elias, Brother Richard, good evening. And good evening to the doctor, the good doctor, Dr. Han. You know, uh, I would like to ask the doctor a question, uh, and it's related to current events. And it may not be related to the topic are you really talking about? But mm-hmm. well, just, I just want to get the doctor's opinion because he seems to have the pulse of what is taking place and I need some clarity, if you don't know mind. No, no. Okay, doctor, um, I know you are aware of the situation that is taking place in Sudan currently. And, um, uh, One more thing I want to put in context, you know, Sudan produces uh, uh, 60 to 70 percent of the world's gum arabic and emulsifier that is used in the soda, the soft drink industry, and in the pharmaceutical industry. It's a very needed uh, product, but it comes out of Sudan, 60 to 70 percent of the world's supply. Um, if the doctor can shed some light on what is going on and where do he see this development taking place and I'll just hang up and, um, uh, listen to the doctor's response.
1: Well, well, you, well, well. Well, stay, uh, stay with us a second. Go ahead. All uh, right. All right. Go ahead. Ado.
10: Well, point number one is that, uh, I've been giving many talks in Sudan lately, uh, On Some of them can be found on the Activist News Network, which is the uh, YouTube site. Secondly, this is in part due to the fact that, as noted, I used to be uh, in the law field. And and during that time, I was invited by the Union of Arab Jurors to come to Sudan, to go to Sudan to try to get involved in a a mediation process of a previous civil war. Obviously, my efforts uh, did not succeed since Sudan is now on the brink of another civil war. But the, the war that's unfolding right now has to do with the split in the military uh, between the regular forces and a branch called the Rapid Support Forces who have been accused of being involved in human rights violations in the Darfur region of Sudan, a sprawling region of Sudan, which is larger in territory than spain for example sudan in addition to the emulsifier that you mentioned also is a source of gold and there are credible stories about members of the armed forces smuggling gold out of sudan recall that for millennia uh, egypt the neighbor to the north was dominant in sudan we could do another three hours on, on that narrative. But in Egypt, as you probably know, the military plays a huge role in the economy. It would be as if uh, U.S. military officers were in control of Apple and Microsoft and Fox News, and General Motors, etc. Et cetera. And their brethren in Sudan were seeking to evolve in a similar fashion the and and, and when you have uh, that much wealth involved oftentimes it leads to conflict hence the conflict between the rapid support forces and the regular military and then there are the outside forces i mentioned egypt egypt is supporting the regular military the gulf arabs uh, the united arab emirates the saudis tend to be in support of the rapid support forces The latter has been very helpful to the Gulf Arabs in terms of the conflict that the Saudis ignited in Yemen, just across the Red Sea. So I can go on in this vein. I mean, as I said, I've I've done a number of uh, talks about Sudan because of my experiences there and because of my affection for the place. Although I I will mention one more point before I, I pass the mic back, and that is that Sudan used to be the largest country by territory. Uh, on the continent of Africa. But you may recall that about a decade or so ago, you had the secession of South Sudan from the larger Sudan, not least because South Sudan is awash in oil. And uh, interestingly enough, the then U.S. president, speaking of George W. Bush, was instrumental uh, in that process and in a kind of homage to Mr. Bush to this very day, many of the leaders of South Sudan are rarely photographed without their Texas cowboy hats on, <laughs> which is uh, quite interesting. <laughs>
1: uh... Bella, another one, or, or that, that's good yeah, enough.
17: Yes, yeah, no, no. Hold on. When, when, when he mentioned, um, the doctor mentioned Egypt. Now, the the the, the funny thing are uh, the we know that America supports Egypt. You know, America gives the Egyptian government ten million dollars each year. You know, to support that military regime there. And there is also another general in eastern Libya is General Haftar. Mm -hmm. Now, these two guys are friends, you know, Haftar and Sisi. They are aligned together. But in the war that's taking place in Sudan, you find that Haftar is supporting the RSF and Egypt is supporting the military, Mm-hmm. See, mm-hmm. so you have to wanna know so what is going on? What is go really going on here? These two guys are supposed to be allies, Libya and, and Egypt are supposed to be allies, but one side supporting the rapid forces and another side supporting Egypt, um supporting the Egyptian, I mean the, the, the e- Egypt supporting the Sudanese army. And the people are saying no, they don't want none of these guys. They say they don't want uh, the, 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 the general and they don't want that guy in the RSF because they're saying they're destroying the country. So, you know, it's just spinning. Well, you know what? This had to happen, do you know. This had to happen because there is no way to dislodge because there are certain elements within the Egyptian army, like the Muslim Brotherhood, that they don't want to get out. So I guess the people say, look... Let this guy fight this guy, and then, you know, we see what happened. And then, after they, you know, we see what happened. But it's just a tragic situation. But, you know, the way I was looking at it, it had to happen. It, 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 there's no way they could have prevented it. <laughs> you nice. know, so it, Anyway, Doctor, thank you for your response. I appreciate it. I'll mute my phone and continue
1: Thank you for your contribution. No problem. Richard that reminds me of that clip we played the other week when uh, Langley was being grilled by the, the committee at congress about what was going on on the continent. <laughs> oh, boy. Wow. Dr. Horn, listen, yes, sir. uh before we uh kind of let you go uh and uh and relax because I know that you probably want to put your feet up and all, you probably had a busy day. Richard might have a, a thing or two to, to to kind of send you on your way, uh, a question or two. But I want to ask you about a couple other things that has nothing to do with the, the topic tonight. But go ahead, Richard, because I don't want to uh, break the flow. If you, uh...
9: no, uh, I, I think I, I don't want to uh, hold uh, Dr. Horn too long. So I, I'll just uh, see, you know, just wait and we can um, uh, move move to. You know, closure based off of what you had. Uh, I, I do have the. Uh, I'm looking at the swastika on the the cover of the book, but that's um, the whole thing of fascism. But I think that that's that's something that we possibly can close out with um, in this moment on um, where we are now. Um, the rise of fascism and how it relates to the historical moment of text. You know. Of, of the development of
1: Texas. And you know, Um, you know know what you mentioned that Richard, and that kind of goes to what I was mentioning before, you know, when our people see some of these things and don't use a historical perspective, like Dr. Horn is talking about, then you see them as far as being incidents in time that you don't relate to other things. Like when they saw stuff happening with Donald Trump, Oh, you know, this mindset, he it never happened before, he's dangerous, this, that, and the other. But this type of stuff, he's only doing what people did before him and his ancestors before this stuff that the the things that Dr. Horn is mentioning in his book, Richard, is basically happening now. Mm-hmm. But the people that's doing it, they're about five or six generations out from the people that Doctor Horn is talking about in his book. Am I right, Doctor Horn?
10: Oh sure you may recall that uh, the 45th US president who I'm sad to say may become the 47th US president when he was in the White House the picture on the wall that he honored was that of Andrew Jackson.
11: Okay, right? yes.
10: Who of course engineered the trail of tears that expelled the indigenous from the southeast quadrant of North America and was a central part of this book that's now before us.
1: Mm. Yeah, so that, well, you know, I, <laughs> all right. Dr. Horn, before we go, you know, you, you mentioned something to one of the callers that uh, you were talking to earlier that uh, you got another book coming out next week. Uh, you,
11: how it?
10: you doing? No, come on thing. now. How you
1: do you
11: do
10: that? you got a printing press
1: even... in your basement. <laughs> yeah, it's,
10: it's clean living. That's the key clean living. <laughs> If you have to ask me what that means, my telling you won't make any difference.
9: <laughs> I hear that. Well, we appreciate the work. I know that um, uh, a lot of us do and, and, and the analysis. And as we hear, as I hear more and more of your, you know, in your life of of the experience that you had being a part of these historical developments, it, it just, um, you know, it, it also requires you know acknowledging um not only that you produce works like this and and drop the seeds for us to pick up on our uh, our children or our grandchildren so they can further it as discoveries are made but that you're 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 recognizing that it's important for us to to pick up these seeds and to do that interpretation. Um, because it's not just about history for history's sake, as I said, and the work you do is not just about history for history's sake. It's um, you know the strategic
1: part in that in that that is included in that. Uh, I appreciate that. Right on, uh, uh, Dr. Horn. Uh, we won't uh, go through so uh, long of a period to get you back on. We'll try to do this a little more regular because your your books come out and you know. I I, been, I had been meaning to get you on to uh, to talk about my uh, one of my first loves that the boxing book that you wrote, but uh, oh we, right on we go oh, get sure. you we'll get you back on one of the uh, because I got some of the other contacts but one of the emails contacts bounced back but uh, just as long as I can reach you it ain't no problem. And yeah, i
10: uh, not underground yet.
1: <laughs> and before you <laughs> before you go, I see that they uh um uh, they got a, a movie coming out about the. Uh, one of your fellow statesmen uh former heavyweight champion is coming out in a couple of days
10: you mean George Foreman
1: yeah
10: yeah uh, it would be interesting to see yeah. how he's treated
1: i, I do uh, I, 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 <laughs> he got my cure it's got listen uh what's his name um what the boy i forgot the actor's name is in it um oh boy it, it, richard i know you don't know cuz you probably ain't seen the, the previews <laughs> But it, it should be interesting. I'm kind of anxious to see it.
10: And then you, you saw what happened with Javante Davis last uh, That's what last I was getting, getting night,
1: ready right? to say. You saw you saw the fight? I didn't <laughs> see it. I read about it, though. <laughs> okay. Uh, boy, that, he's something else, that Javante Davis. He's something else.
10: The face of boxing, as he calls himself.
1: All right. Dude, we'll, we'll look to have you back on at another time. It was good to have you with us, and I'm looking forward to the next time you're with us.
10: Right on.
1: Good luck to you. <laughs> All right. We're and to- thank you. We're going to take a brief break.
10: Thank you. And we'll be right back.
6: RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter, serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837.
13: Escape the digital plantation. IBB2Me.com, metv 2 mestore are here for you. You are ready to be free to join your global commit to you black family. To join your interconnected commit to you black communities. Escape the digital plantation now. Abibitumi.com. Abibitumi.tv. Abibitumi.tv.com. Abibitumi.store. We are here for you. Escape the digital plantation.
3: I am an African, the death of my brother is also my death. Let me put this question to you again, because many foolish black middle classes and many foolish people who are eating well think that they can sit in America and watch this country destroy the African continents and watch this country destroy African Caribbean and watch this country destroy Africans in Central and South America and think that these same people who destroy Africans abroad will not be the same people who destroy them in America. In this this country who try to claim that they are not Africans, who claim that they do not see color, as if they're not seeing color makes any difference in the world. Simply because you don't see color doesn't mean somebody does not see you as color. And that's the issue. And you think then that you can sit in this country. While this same nation and these same people that you sleep with and marry and love and so forth can go out and destroy African people and not think those people do not see you as African, even though you choose not to see yourself as African, you'd better think again. You're out of your minds and you're headed for death. You must understand that. Hide behind it. I am an American. Ladies and gentlemen, these death and destruction of black people will follow those kind of abstractions.
14: Probably the next five or ten years will indicate whether or not the black man can survive. Our struggle for survival is a very real struggle. And the white man has prepared genocide for black people. Unemployment, the black man is no longer necessary. Unemployment is going to be a way of life for black people. We are going to face increasing dangers and problems as the days pass. And we're totally unequipped as black people to deal with them. We're a part of a slave culture. We have no preparation, we have no black institutions capable of dealing with white racist institutions designed to serve only white people. We must deal with the problem that confronts black people by building black institutions, by understanding that only a separatist position is a viable position for black people. Any organization or any leader in America who today advocates integration is a foe and an enemy of black people and their survival in the coming years.
2: this crooked game of power politics here in America the Negro namely the race problem integration civil rights issue, are all nothing but tools used by the whites who call themselves liberals against another group of whites who call themselves conservatives either to get into power or to retain power among whites here in America The political teams are no longer divided into Democrats and Republicans. The whites who are now struggling for control of the American political throne are divided into liberal and conservative camps. The white liberals from both parties cross party lines to work together toward the same goal. And white conservatives from both parties do likewise. The white liberal differs from the white conservative only in one way, The liberal is more deceitful, more hypocritical, than the conservative. Both want power, but the white liberal is the one who has perfected the art of posing as the Negro's friend and benefactor. And by winning the friendship and support of the Negro, the white liberal is able to use the Negro as a pawn or a weapon in this political football game that is constantly raging between the white liberals and the white conservatives. The American Negro is nothing but a political football.
12: You are listening to Time for an Awakening. Time, Time for an Awakening. Awakening. With host Brother Elliot and Brother Richard on Time for an Awakening Media. Part of the Black Talk Radio Network for podcasting or live program scheduling. Hit them up at timeforanawakening at gmail.com.
1: Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. It's 9.30 on this Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening. Richard, it was good to have uh, Dr. Hall with us to expand on the book and talk about other things related to it and give us a perspective on uh on uh, how he viewed that period. Well, how history yes. viewed that period, put it that way, how accurate, uh, the, the accuracy of, of, uh, of facts view that period instead of the, uh, the Aesop's fables or the storybook that a lot of our people understand about those, those periods. It's always good to get the accurate information.
9: Yes, it is. And, and I'm, and I'm also glad to see that, you know, um, and I want to, you know, give that shout out again, um, to the. Clubhouse um, audience for, you know, tuning in and and being a part of, you know, because Elliot, they, I have to say, they helped me, um, you know, in in reading and keeping up and even just helping me frame to be able to engage with Dr. Horn Because you could see based off his experience and his age um, that he's been involved. He's not just an academic, you know, what they call them, uh, activist, academics, um and, and and it's one thing that I notice about the the academics that do have law background they have a different set of of tools to make their analysis from, and you definitely can see it in this particular work um because it's very detailed and I know some people would say, well, you know you can go through you know like in the questionings to go through the text, but I think it's something that we have to read, and the thing the beauty of his work is that he did other texts that give you the interrelatedness of that period. So when you talk about Cuba, when you talk about Brazil, when you talk about South Africa, when you talk about the British or the French, um, he's already pulled those together in other texts so that we have a a body of a historical narrative. But what's most important, that African people being there uh, is positioned in relationship to how the state and how the power dynamics in relationship to African people, how African people responded, how the state responded, he called Washington and our relationship to each other in the moment in order to deal with the circumstances we're in. So I'm, I'm really helpful. I'm really thankful for, you know, um, his work. And I hope that others, you know, keep the dialogue going cause it'll be helpful. Um, you know, as we move from one generation to
1: the next, and you know the the, the thing that kind of that I wasn't really aware of is that dynamic of um, of uh, the the level of uh, involvement as far as the trade that Texas, as a independent republic, had in relation right. to our ancestors. Right. Um. Uh, one report I saw said that um they had a Count of our, although those counts are never accurate, but they had a count of our ancestors before 1836 in the state of Texas was like six, five or six thousand. But in that ye- those that few year period uh, after they made those agreements to join this uh, that union this union here, the population uh, went from five to six thousand to up to twenty eight thousand of our ancestors in a very short period of time so they were they were doing big business, according mm-hmm. to dr horn in other countries uh, Cuba right. uh, they had the flag in and uh, what do you say brazil they had the that the lone star flag, so they were doing big yeah. business with our ancestors
9: yes yeah. and
1: it's, it's 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 i just you know uh,
9: it's just important about the position that we have to take based off of this history i i guess i I'll stop
1: there. You know, let me clean it up. Big business is trafficking our ancestors. I'm sorry. Before we leave today, I want to give the uh, lineup on time for an awakening media. Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, African Perspectives with Brother Ushi. Always interesting topics and dialogues on African Perspectives. That's Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Later on in the week, Thursday, uh, 7 to 8 Mississippi on the move black liberation movement in Mississippi with host Patrick Lumumba Friday time for awakening is back from 10 from eight until and on Saturday from seven to nine, the elders of Sankofa with Dr. Janine James as host. I want to thank everybody for listening to the program this evening, lively discussion as always. And we'll be back on Friday. Lord willing to continue on this path towards an awakening. Peace.
0: Lazy afternoon Or you watching your children play after school? you